Welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. We created this community for students and for industry to join together as a community and talk sports and really it just be what's going on, what is the future looking like and have a little bit of fun. Welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. I'm Prof Walls. I'm here with Prof Joe, Coach Berlin, our expert in esports and entertainment, Axel Lilmanis, and our expert in social media, Chelsea Vern. So our spotlight speaker tonight is a colleague of mine from many, many, many years ago and has climbed the ranks and has been very successful in his career, Tom Pastori. Tom has been in the sport and business and sport and entertainment business for over 25 years, working uh, in in professional sports predominantly, and is now the president of UBS Arena Commercial Business Operations. Tom, welcome to our show and our podcast this evening. Thanks, Laurel. Great, great to be here and great to see your face after so long. Yeah, so long. So the first time I met you, Tom, I don't know if you recall, but I it, it seems like yesterday, we were in Nova Scotia at a sponsorship uh, conference and uh, I was trying to get to meet somebody from Tim Hortons and his name is David. I won't say his last name. And you had him as a client and I needed to get with him because he was very upset with the NHL at the time about something. And I wanted to make sure that we, we had the discussion and mend fences and it had everything to do. And this is also about our sport marketing and sport business about the way back then, the way that the boards on sponsorship boards in arena were marketed. So it used to be a point where you were able to have anything you wanted on the boards, any color logos until the NHL went to white boards. And uh, so your client happened to be there and I worked at the NHL and you were at MLSE and you were so kind and so courteous and pleasant and professional. And you introduced me to David. Do you remember that at all? Uh, I absolutely remember Nova Scotia and, and our, our wonderful conference. Uh, but, but, now, now that you're reminding me, it's starting to, starting to connect. Uh, I think it worked out, right? It did. It did. It and and Tim Hortons ended up being a partner of the NHL after that. So it was all uh, from your introduction, by the way. So no one ever gave you any credit for that, but credit should be given where credit is due. So listen, uh, tonight- There you we go, 23 years later. But yeah, exactly. We have, uh, you've got this unbelievable job, uh, but you also have a huge challenge right now. I mean, who knew that a year and seven months ago when you took this job that we would be going through COVID-19. And so how has everything that you've done in your career prepared you to deal with the situation that we're in today? Um, I'm not sure what you can pinpoint to say specifically to be able to deal with the global pandemic. Um, you know, you know, none of us were, were alive the last time the influenza or Spanish flu came around, you know, almost like this, kind of like this, maybe certainly traveling faster with the way we move around the globe today. But, but I think we, we kind of retreated to first principles with our group. Um, you know, we, we could control the things that we could control and we knew that the arena was still being built. So, um, you know, we focused all of our energy, all of our attention, all of our passion not into, you know, what ended up being a great Islanders year because we weren't sure when it was going to start or fans were going to be back. And we, we focused on a, on a digital connection, on a virtual connection. And we're pretty relentless from April on once we, once we figured out kind of what the world was going to be like for a while. And again, we scored some of the highest ranking, you know, um, in terms of NHL digital social activity. 
which, you know, a lot of people give Lou, our president and GM of the hockey team, a lot of pain around, you know, you know, thinking that he's a, you know, challenging individual to work with or work for and, and Lou's absolutely supportive. He, he, he allows us to do a lot of things. He has perspective and a mentality around, around hockey and players, but it allowed us to be really engaged with our fans. So I, I think we ended up fifth or sixth or seventh in the league for a while rank, which is pretty amazing for, for a team that typically would rank in the bottom third of most measures. And, and uh, the, the arenas, you know, you know, continued. So we, we sold the hope of what effectively late 21 and 22 will be. And God help us if we're not all back to some semblance of normalcy by then we'll, we'll be all dealing with larger issues than, you know, this little arena in New York. So we have Chelsea here, who's our expert in social media. And tomorrow, actually, one of the quizzes in my class has to do with understanding the power of social media and specifically, and you worked for MLSE, but I don't think that the Argos were there at the time. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe they were just there towards the end of your time before you became president of UBS Arena. Um, but we're, we're looking at how social media in a time where there is no play can have a powerful impact. So could you um, maybe talk about how much ranking that high matters. I mean, you are the president of an organization and you, that matters to your organization because you have engagement with the fan base when there is no longer sport happening. Yeah, you know, I I think it's just it's just another evolved touch point and you know, um, from a digital perspective it allows you to touch a lot more people. Um, you know, I I think a lot of people found it as immediate research, immediate feedback. I tend to think that you know, you can at moments in time kind of overvalue or react to comments that, you know, sometimes in the social media sphere aren't, aren't necessarily maybe comments you want to hear or like to hear. But, you know, it was important for us purely from an engagement perspective. And, and we use it as a great communication tool, as a great branding tool, um, you know, uh, to interact and stay re uh, uh, relevant. I think we took a really unique approach or maybe not so unique, but it was at least consistent on um, there was a bunch of fun stuff. There's a bunch of informational stuff. There was a bunch of pretty straightforward player activations. There was a bunch of interactive stuff. So we really tried to be new and tried to push the team to get out of the box and, and try stuff that was different and not just, you know, have your generic players coming on social media, posting stuff. You know, we, we, we really tried hard with the arena and with the team to, you know, to try and be fun and do a bunch of fun things. So we think it paid off and, and it's great to get that feedback um, in that moment. And, and it's great to stay connected, especially in, a, in an environment where digital and virtual was the only way to do it. So, okay, let, let, let's shift a little bit here. In Easter, uh, the Islanders made Easter uh, Conference basically last season, their best postseason run in 27 years. Dan, let's talk about the Islanders entering the season without a first and second round pick. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, one of the shrewdest moves, Tom, for the Islanders was uh, being able to pluck Barry Trotz from the Capitals and, and put a, a leader there. I'd love to hear your take on if you've had any meetings with with Coach Trotz and just, uh, again, um, it's so clear that, you know, he brings a winning formula uh, to the team. But I do want to give a shout out to Corey Wright, who, you know, when you talk about some of the work you've done on social and digital, you know, he's a Ryerson grad from the journalism school. Yeah, yeah. Just as a small footnote, I came back to the university as a mature student, was a classmate of Corey's when he first took his internship in fourth year with the Islanders, which was his dream. 
to work with the Islanders. Uh, Tommy, just any thoughts on that at all? Uh, yeah, uh, Corey's great. I uh, I saw him two or three weeks ago as we did our topping out, you know, the final beam getting placed on the arena, you know, in terms of uh, almost a, a monumental ceremony. And so Corey and I actually did get to catch up. And there are quite a bit of Canadians involved in this project. So I worked with Mike Cosentino, Laurel, who, who you know, and, and Mike and I spent a lot of time together at MLSC. You know, then he went to Vancouver and then he came over to this project. Ryan Halkett is another is another Canadian, uh, and he runs our, our our video content and our game production. Brett Rossi, who works for the Sabres, is also a Canadian from out west. So I think there is a real authenticity with uh, Canadians. Um, not to suggest that there's not an authenticity, um, you know, south of the border, but it is nice to have fellow fellow Canucks around. Um, in terms of Lou and Barry, I mean, I got to work with Lou specifically in Toronto for about three years. And, you know, so he was one of the big impacts for me to, to come onto the project, you know, separate from uh, Tim Lawicki, who was my CEO and, and, and now is, um, is a, a partner in uh, UBS Arena amongst all of his other arenas via OVG. Having Lou there just provided, again, another base and, and level of uh, comfort. And Lou and I always, you know, like have this deal that from a business perspective, there's stuff that you focus on and then there's team perspective. And, and while we intersect, Lou, Lou keeps his, his business and team function right, right on track and the business doesn't meddle in the team. Sure. And, and so we have a wonderful working relationship and him bringing Barry on and, you know, I've, I've gotten to meet Barry several times, you know, uh, I'll just say one word and it's culture, right? And you establish a culture of accountability, of hard work, of results driven. And that culture means so much. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's hard for the players, you know, because they, they, uh, they didn't achieve anything this year. You know, I got to have lunch with Lou and, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's very adamant that this was a great start but you don't really get to completion until you lift the trophy over your head. So he's in his seventies and he's as driven as I've seen any individual half his age and him and Barry together, you know, we are just so blessed to have them on the hockey leadership side. And the important part for me is when you win as Lerno's from, from, from the team side, you're just smarter, taller, all of your results are better. They're all amplified. So it's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great perspective to be able to have the team as we go into the new venue to be able to do what they did after 27 years. But what we try and do on the team side is really put in all the good discipline and all the good uh, business strategy and all the good work habits. So similar to like building a team, you're not going to win every night, but we have to do all the little things the right time, the right way every day. And if you do enough of that, you know, then you're going to have success. And then when the team takes off, you know, it, it just gets amplified. That's a great, that's just great to know. And I, I think just isolating it there, Tom, as, as, as culture and winning culture isn't always defined. I mean, again, in professional sports, ultimately you want to be the team raising the cup, but that, that winning is doing all the little things right, which ultimately lead to winning. And if you even look at Coach Trotz's background, you know, he had to go through a lot of seasons that fell short of the ultimate goal before he ultimately reached it. I can only imagine for someone at this stage and stature within the NHL and in his career that now having that, that win under his belt just exudes in everything that he does. And of course, Lou is, we're talking, you know, future Hall of Famer and completely one of the great builders the league has seen over the last 30 years. So what, what, a, what an awesome opportunity to be able to come in and, and work within 
that culture. You know, I noticed over the weekend that uh, UBS, and I imagine you were a big part of this, revealed the plans for the luxury suites and the spaces. Um, you know, interestingly, when the ACC originally launched the Air Canada Center back in February of 1999, believe it or not, I was one of the original tour guides at the Leafs and Raptors Arena. True story. Oh, and I had the great gift of being able to take new right. people around this arena. So, Tom, if you're our tour guide, I mean, I can only imagine what this arena is going to hold in store from a fan experience and just an amenity standpoint. Give us, you know, maybe the 60 to 120 second grand tour of what's going to make this such an incredible space. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh uh, ACC 99, man, that, that was, uh, that was a great kickoff. And it seems like a lifetime ago. Um, I remember closing the gardens and opening the buildings. So one, once you get into the bill, um, once you get into the campus, campus is the right word because, uh, it's a real historic building and, you know, there's, there's brick and glass and it's not built contemporary, but, but we call it, um, you know, a historic design with modern amenities in a park setting. And so, really in the uh, uh, New York uh, Arena Racing Authority campus, right by Belmont Park, uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of acres of land. Uh, and again, put right into the campus setting with 100 year old trees, really remarkable for a somewhat urban arena to be able to put into a, an area like that. Um, from an acoustic perspective, uh, it's not a very big building. It's about 17,200 in terms of capacity. So if you compare that to Toronto, that's, you know, around the 19,000, that makes the building a lot higher in terms of more uh, upper bowl seats. So we have a very small upper bowl, um, but that roof line keeps it very steep and keeps the sound in. So we think sound for hockey as well as sound for um, uh, concerts and that acoustic perspective uh, really can play kind of the sixth man um, a couple of the really important things, you know, from a design perspective is this was built for hockey. Um, so Lou got his say where the Zamboni is, 25,000 square feet of, of, um, of locker room space. All of the things you can imagine that a player today would want, and especially from where they were coming at from Nassau Coliseum, you know, a, a very old, historic, but antiquated building, um, similar to the gardens and the Boston gardens, you know, um, you know, all arenas have their shelf life and and from a hockey perspective, um, you know, it's wonderful that the players know that they can have such an unbelievable amenity, you know, it keeps them happier, you know, perhaps serves to attract new free agents as well. So there is a lot of momentum there. On the music side, you know, and Tim's very passionate about this is um, music in most buildings isn't seen as a tenant. So with all due respect to any lacrosse players or any other tenants, you know, there isn't going to be a B tenant in the building. Uh, music is going to be our co-tenant. So we're in the biggest entertainment hub in the world. Uh, music, in my mind, after the pandemic, especially, and we were touching on this, uh, fans are going to come roaring back to try and get eyeball and eyeball. And I think Joe was saying that, you know, I'm a big believer once everyone feels safe and there's great protocols and, you know, perhaps vaccines and all that kind of stuff. I think we're all really desperate for the human congregation. And so as music comes back, um, we built the venue with a really efficient load-in. So this sounds like really boring, geeky, you know, design stuff, but it's really important because if the acts can load in quickly, they generally make more money. Uh, we have a biggest lower bowl in the marketplace. And when you have the biggest lower bowl, you're, you're able to sell tickets at 
at a P1 or a P2 or P3 price point, which again makes the artist a better financial model. So if you were to compare us with the back of house where most artists go into the dressing rooms and it gets piped and draped and, and, you know, when, when all-star games come in and Laurel would know that, you know, you're, you're kind of, you know, makeshifting a bunch of places. We have an absolute compound for the artists, for the promoter, for all of their entourage, almost like a visiting team, almost like another tenant, except again, music is the tenant. So if you were to compare a, the same artist playing New York, playing a different venue in New York, you'd probably make a half a million dollars more uh, per night. And you know, we certainly think where the music business is, you know, that's going to be a factor in getting the show. So we could say that we're partnering with Live Nation, Irving Azoff's the biggest touring manager. Um, all those things are great to say, but the math also works, right? So if you follow the money, then then acts will route into your building. And that's really important to, to your point now in the premium. We built the premium spaces in very, very high design. I mean, this this building now, if you look at T-Mobile, which was built for probably 350 to 450. Uh, we're going to be over a billion dollars in terms of this build and design. And, and a lot of it's gone in to the, to the fixtures, to the finishes, to the amenities. So we have three or four main clubs. We have eight bars that are all open to the ice and all open to the bowl. So it's going to be really accessible for fans. And the different clubs have really a different product set. There's only 36 traditional seats, uh, suites. There's only 18 uh, bunker suites. And then what, what the world today is consuming is a lot more what we call fractional ownership. So I can't do a whole suite. I can afford it, um, you know, but it takes, it takes manpower. It's almost a job to run a suite. And so we've created a lot of smaller clubs, which are twos and fours and sixes. So the consumer base can kind of bite off pieces and still be in a premium setting. So Tom, I actually would love to jump in and weigh in here. Uh, I was chatting with a colleague of mine today at Ryerson and we were chatting about music. And he said to me, Laurel, what do you know about music? I didn't know you studied music. I didn't know you knew anything about music. I thought you were sports. And I found it, <laughs> I, I don't know, I'm speechless at the moment. But anyway, um, I want to tie in Axel here, who is music, entertainment, and esports, and and I, I laugh at that comment because I, my response was no, I, I'm actually not in the music business, but sports is in the music business. So Axel, sports is in the music business. It's in the entertainment business. You're in the entertainment and esport business. So can you tie the three together and ask Tom a question? Yeah, thank, thanks, thanks, Laurel. Hey, hey, Tom. Um, yeah, you you mentioned. Um, uh, you know, that this was a clean slate as far as being able to build a building from scratch. And it's definitely the two newest buildings on the block when you factor in um, Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle. So they're two, two developments that are very top of mind for people. Uh, so you've had the opportunity to re really rethink the economics around uh, how an arena works and how you're engaging with fans and how you're monetizing the property and how you're, um, how you appeal to music acts and, um, uh, um, and 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 season ticket holders, uh, I'd I'd love to hear a little bit more around you know the clean slate with the fans, the community. Um, obviously, it's been a tumultuous last few years with you know bouncing between uh, buildings, um, you know getting getting this uh, development underway, and I think fans are, are going to be more more than excited to to uh, start start their new season and new building. But I'd love to hear a little bit more around how how the organization has 
approach the fans? You know, this is an entertainment world with lots of choices and lots of options. How, how have you reset and rethought engaging fans, in particular young audiences, which um, appear to be hard to, hard to track nowadays? Yeah, um, you know, we, we built a, a few specific areas uh, in terms of two outdoor terraces um, that are, that are going to be uh, sponsored by an unbelievable um, uh, alcohol bev partner, which, which we'll be announcing soon. And, and they're a terrific global brand. So we're really excited about that. But they also helped us do a bunch of thinking around some of our other clubs. As I said, you know, there's uh, eight, eight clubs. Six of those are on various concourses and have views. Two of them are specifically uh, built. One, one is, is what we call a legacy club. And the other is a tailgate club, which is which is really an Islanders fan focused. Almost, you know, some people might might call it the millennial club, you know. But I, I almost find that that term now gets overused. It's it's great young fans. And a part of the you know a lot of the thinking that we put to that is we will be the first arena with uh, what I would call a safe standing seat. I don't know that there's another arena. We've done a lot of you know you know research into it, but. If you follow European soccer, you know, Germany specifically is, you know, some, some of their great venues, Dortmund and some of their others. Uh, we built a safe standing section in, in front of a, a standing room type bar, uh, specifically, you know, based around our younger fans that are very engaged. The Islanders have a, have a very supporter soccer mentality, something that, that, you know, I have lots of experience with TFC in Toronto and uh, the ability to have four or 500 fans in almost a standing, chanting, jumping, drumming um, uh, section in an arena, in a hockey arena is gonna be very, very unique. And, and I don't wanna give away kind of what our totem moment is gonna be, but it's gonna be very European soccer, uh, drums and rigging and banners. And, and we're looking forward to kind of launching that as, as kind of our moment. Again, I've seen it a lot in stadiums, um, but this is a pretty thoughtful concept and design for a $25 ticket in a big standing room for fans that want to come, be part of the action, watch kind of a little bit, maybe watch in the stands, maybe watch in the bar, but be very social and, and interact. I bet the Blue and Orange Army are going to love that up in Section 329. That's pretty exciting. The Blue and Orange Army helped us uh, helped us map out some of the thinking around it, so... But, uh, but as you know, uh, you have to love all your supporter groups, not, not just one of them. Well, I, I, think, it's, I think it's quite unique that, uh, you know, you invited the input from the Blue and Orange Army. I think it speaks to, you talk a little bit about these luxury spaces and how unique and developed they are to obviously appeal to your corporate community. And then at the same time, Section 329, you're acknowledging the every fan and the people who sort of are the heartbeat of the team. And I know with, you know, even when the ACC yep. was first built, you know, the platinum lounges were an interesting concept and a design to appeal to those who could afford the best seats, but it actually ended up creating a bit of a disconnect at times when people were still in their lounges what, and not in their seats when periods would start. Well, like, what do you think ultimately with your time at MLSE where the lessons best learn that you're you feel like are being applied here and are going to make this such a an incredible experience for fans I think you know the atmosphere um that you need in in a venue I'll you know I'll tell you my first experience if you remember um you know the Islanders had traded John Tavares and and I had I had um quietly joined you know you know pending visa 
and uh, watching them play the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins that year, um, you know, very, very reminiscent, you know, like they took the path of the Raptors, you know, as I, as I spoke to Lewis, you know, if you remember the Raptors had traded Rudy Gay and thought that they were going to, you know, tank and get Andrew Wiggins back in the day. And uh, uh, lo and behold, you know, provided oxygen for DeMar and Kyle and, and they became, you know, quite a great tandem and, you know, until Kawhi joined, but, but it allowed, you know, that team culturally to come together. So uh, amazing to see it almost happen in a similar way with the Islanders. When, when John left, you know, the rest of the players stopped relying on John and kind of built their own culture and, and uh, made a bit of a run, right? They learned how to win. They beat the Penguins. Um, so I'm at NASA Coliseum and, you know, you know, I still have a lot of dear friends, some of who, who still work at MLSC, but they're watching the game on CBC and, and just, you know, pinging me like, it sounds like an insane asylum over there. Like, is it actually that loud? Uh, Tom, we have a student question from Rukaya. So since the New York Islanders are moving back from Long Island to Brooklyn, how has retro marketing influenced the way you engage fans and create brand loyalty? Are you using Mike Bossy, any nostalgia, any old school, or bringing back the alumni? Yeah. We have a wonderful alumni. You know, the Islanders won 19 straight playoff series. Uh, that won't be broken in our lifetime. I will tell you, there'll be other records, 400 or you know, home run records. I'm trying to think of some of the other amazing one, 100 points in the game, but 19 straight playoff series wins will not ever happen again in our life. And so we have a we have an unbelievable alumni. Um, I'll tell you the one thing that Tim taught us so in Toronto is embracing the alumni as we moved from Brooklyn back to Long Island. Uh, Long Island is an unbelievably rich and, and deep market. Uh, they have huge loyalty for the Islanders. Um, a, a wonderful point is if Long Island was a city on its own, it'd be the sixth largest city in the NHL. So there's over 7 million people in Long Island, Nassau County, Suffolk. So, so bringing a team back to an underserved market with an unbelievable alumni of Mike Bossy, John Tonelli, Clark Gillies, Butch Goring, um, they're all around. They're all supportive. They'll, they'll attend any golf foursome you want, any meeting, any dinner. It's really a great group. But one of the big focuses of Tim that he even had here was, you know, the Leafs had a, have a wonderful legacy in terms of winning Stanley Cup, second most in the NHL. But if you think back for too long, you, you know, you forget to move forward. So you can't stay in your history and your mystique too long. You, you have to push forward and create new memories for your fans. Otherwise, your pictures get black and white pretty quick. Thank you, Matthew. I think you have a question. One of our students in second year sport media has a question for you, Tom. Hi, Tom. Hi, everyone. I just have a question about the building being in Log Island as opposed to Brooklyn and um, the importance of that, because I felt like Brooklyn's a great city, but the connection between the Islanders and Long Island is, is such a connection that's so deeply ingrained in the city and the team. Um, how important was it to have the team based back in Long Island? Uh, the, the logo has Long Island in it. So, <laughs> so if your logo represents your heartbeat, it's literally the diaspora return of the team that you know, has been wandering for years and never had a home that they owned, right? So this is a huge monumental moment for this huge New York market and this fan base that finally gets a venue. 
and finally gets their team to come back. A bunch of good decisions at the time to move it to Brooklyn that, you know, I think may have made, may or may not have made sense, but in that environment, but bringing the team to Long Island is, is the absolute right thing to be able to have the team survive because there's so much passion in this huge seven, eight million person kind of catchment uh, all the way to Westchester, New York and into Connecticut and all the way east. It's a massive market and there's not another basketball team. It really is hockey country. So I'm blessed to keep learning about the, the connectivity of the fans to the team, specifically in Long Island. So it's not a Manhattan team in some respects, but it'll certainly draw from Manhattan. Tony, Tony Luch. Hey, how are you? Yeah, Tom, I just want to know, I mean, in terms of sponsorship dollars and attracting dollars when you've got the Mets, the Yankees, the, the Devils, I mean, you've got eight, nine teams within an hour and a half of each other. How hard is it to deal with corporate sponsorships and lure them in? Because, I mean, usually a lot of those other teams have star players and, and, and sponsors like attaching themselves to star players other than Matt Barzell. I mean, this is a real working class team, I, I call the Islanders. And, you know, you've got a great GM in Lou Lamorello, uh, obviously, and who was a former devil. So how hard is it to go to the sponsors and, and try to attract dollars that way? You know, it's, a, it's the most competitive marketplace um, that I've been a part of. And um, from the NFL, from, from the Rangers, you know, from the Knicks for a huge brand in the marketplace and, and Jets and Giants. So Tony, we... We, we take that we're the Long Island team and there, there is this very loyal base. You know, again, if we added it all up, it would, you know, be over seven or eight million people. So I think the project stands separate to an individual player. One of the things that I learned is, you know, the front of the jersey has to stand more than, than the star power of any individual player on the back. So creating that environment with Lou and Barry has really helped. And that the front starts to represent from a brand perspective, something more than, you know, a single individual, which brands sometimes can get lost in, in the name on the jersey versus the front uh, from time to time. My follow up is then, I mean, again, with competing with those markets and all the teams involved, like Toronto in the GTA is a four and a half million population, yet we've only got four teams, maybe if you include buffalo sabers i mean there's your fifth you know your closest nhl market so i mean and again i mean that's still part of the u.s so up here in canada i mean you all want to be with with the with the leafs i just the the drive for sponsorship dollars i mean that's got to be seriously competitive there with all yeah. those with all those four other i mean eight other teams really that you're going against and that's not even counting the mls soccer with the New York Bulls who are who were extremely uh, popular as well. You know, college athletics also is very big. So again, uh, it's, it's an unbelievable uh, competitive environment. Our value proposition is that we're gonna deliver on partnership goals. Um, you know, any venue uh, can only have, you know, one beer partner or one auto. So, yeah. so there's always other challenger type brands and uh, certainly, you know, announcing UBS, I would not suggest that they're a challenger brand in any way, shape, or form, but doing three or four really big deals, which I'm really excited for this group to keep following in, in telco and in beer, you start to get also a, a fellowship amongst the partnership team. So we, we have announced, I can tell you that um, Northwell Health, which is the largest employer uh, on Long Island and, and one of the largest health institutions, 
them along with UBS and the three or four that we will also bring to market, it also really starts to reshape. So there is a little bit of a birds of a feather mentality. So if you want to be part kind of a great group and a great family. So, you know, the heavy lifting is, you know, less in the last 10. It's really in the first five or six. So you demonstrate capabilities and, and then we start to get a lot of momentum. I want to bring in Joe for a moment, if I could. Joe, uh, leadership and branding in sports. Um, you've got a couple of questions for Tom, I, I believe, in this space. Yes. Um, something we've said to students since the pandemic started is um, keep busy during the pandemic. Create, produce, do things. Don't just assume because um, stuff is shut down that you can't do things because we... We crystal balled it for them and said, somewhere down the line, later on in a job interview, someone's gonna ask you, what did you do during the pandemic? We kind of feel like that's almost this, like a, a question in, in hiring boards. So as you as someone, a leader, you know, in the sports entertainment industry, what kind of values and, and, and what kind of um, experiences are you gonna be looking for in upcoming leaders and managers within the sports entertainment industry? For us, you know, something that I learned and I was blessed to, you know, spend a lot of time working for, you know, great CEO like, like Richard and then uh, another great CEO like, like Tim, you know, certainly diverse personalities, but um, attitude is really the first piece in sport, especially if you're trying to break in, you know, having great work ethic, having a disciplined approach. So in the pandemic, it's pretty easy, you know, never to take off your pajamas and not shave, right? But, you know, to your point about you know, planning your days, being productive. Um, so I think the sport world, you know, once it opens back up and a lot of hiring, and I mean, we're, we're still in the midst of doing a lot of hiring because again, we're, we're focused on the arena for 21-22. You know, we, we want to see great attitude. Uh, we we want to hire, you know, a great staff that culturally works together. Um, communication skills are really important. A bunch of the other stuff students will bring, you know, uh, on their own you know, around discipline, around ambition, you know, around learning and continuous learning. Um, you know, those, th those are all things that I took from, from spending a lot of time in Toronto and hiring a lot of great, great young people, um, you know, that now have gone on to do great, great things. That actually answered one of my other questions about what the advice you'd give to young people. Um, now I want to kind of pivot to a bit about how, about players of a franchise and how they can contribute to continually raising the brand of their franchise. But even more than that, something that we're really seeing now, especially in light of the pandemic, and I think we're always thinking now, how did things change because of the pandemic? Athlete activism has become so huge, you know, and especially in the last six, eight months, year, two years. I mean, when you think about Colin Kaepernick only a few years ago, that was seen as really extreme. Um, there was a time when it was players were not expected to be activists. That is really shifting now. And how does that work in, in tandem with, you know, a franchise and with the sports entertainment industry? How can athletes be activists and, and also still be aligned with, with their corporate culture? You know, you know, I think these are really um, interesting times, you know, from, a, from an athlete perspective, you know, especially around social media. And, um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of things, you know, and I, I'd be I'd be stepping on kind of some lose territory, right? Which which I'm always keen to stay out of lose territory. But I think the team concept and the team approach, which in you know is still really important in terms of results. But I think it's important for each player 
to now I think be part and have a voice. And I don't know what that means exactly because it's very personal. And each player might have a have a certain civil obligation to want to do something around some of the two stuff or some of the Black Lives Matter. Like there's there's a bunch of causes that didn't get as much prominence that I think athletes today now have a platform. And, you know, I remember growing up, you know, some of the greatness of Michael, um, uh, as in Michael Jordan, kind of worn off for me because he really never stood for anything, right? He, he almost kept his brand so clean, so agnostic and would never kind of pick a fight. Maybe that's not the right, you know, uh, or maybe take a stand per se. Uh, and I think recently, if you've seen his documentary, he's he's kind of come out and he's actually promoted a few things. I you know it's it's not top of mind, but but I know he's now used his platform. And you know I think most of the players in their 20s today, um, you know, are adeptly using social media and the platforms that they have for causes that are important for each of them. You know, some very public and some very private. Okay. Thank you. So Dan, over to you. So we are just to, to fill you in. We've got about three minutes left, Tom. So we want to make sure that we use our time wisely. I know Axel has more questions as Chelsea hasn't had a chance to talk tonight, but uh, this has been phenomenal. And we're so happy that the students have been able to engage with you. We have something called rapid fire. It is Dan Coach Berlin's signature uh, portion of the show, segment of the show. You uh, can answer with one or two word answers, preferably if it does take an explanation, Dan will guide you through the way, but try to get it in one or two answers. Dan, over to you, over rapid fire. Thank you, uh, Tom. Thanks for uh, being an agreed uh, or agreeing to take part in our rapid fire tonight. And again, I'll ask you a question. The idea here, uh, kind of the first thing um, that comes to mind for you, and, uh, and we can kind of go from there. How, how's that sound to you? Great. All right. So your sports hero growing up, Magic Johnson. In a word, what was it about Magic that captivated you? He was a winner. He made his teammates better. Hey, Islanders dynasty years in the 80s were happening right around the same time you were watching Magic. So I got to assume you were watching some of those cup winning teams. What stands out more for you? Bossy's 50 goals in 50 games or Butch Goring's helmet? Uh, Mike Bossy, without a doubt, if it wasn't for Wayne Gretzky, he'd, he'd be re remembered as one of the greatest. He's often forgotten. Yeah, no question. He, he was just, he had the finishing touch. Now, on your Twitter, you kind of mentioned that you are a music lover. So considering all the concerts that are going to be happening at the new arena, at UBS Arena, if you could personally handpick the first show there that you get to be front row center for, past or present, who would it be? Pearl Jam, easy. Yeah, that's an easy one. I've seen them a couple of times myself. Hey, so I guess if you're in quarantine and could only have one Pearl Jam album with you, which one is it gonna be? Probably their their first album. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stay true to that one. Yeah. So Pearl Jam 10. Yeah, I think Ted's there, sure. I might take Vitalogy, but I'll take Ted. That's a beauty. Um, you also mentioned that you're grateful for the fact that you have the two best daughters in the world. So here's a two-part question. Part A, where does your gratitude come from? They're really great people, and they're really fun to hang out with. So I, I, uh, it's the pleasure to spend time with them, which, which is something I feel very fortunate about. So what's the best fatherly advice that you can give everyone out there regarding raising two teenage daughters? They really hate sports, uh, no matter how hard I tried. 
And so uh, they became great students, great artists, a great swimmer. Um, you know, you know that's a that's a sport after trying a lot of things. But uh, being comfortable to let them do what they're most passionate about and helping them find find their passion. And I guess in light of that, as you've sort of followed your passion throughout your career, what's the single most rewarding part of being a part of this new project? Uh, being able to do it with great people like Tim and Lou and being able to do it, as, as Tony said, in, in the most competitive sports and entertainment market is, is something that's been and is and will be for the next couple of years as we get it opened and get it thriving is a, is a real challenge that pushes you every day. Well, Tom, that is our rapid fire for Monday, October 26th. And I will say you look awfully dashing in your screensaver photo that we get to see here. So thanks for participating, for the honesty and for some great answers. Appreciate that. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody. All right. Yes. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for that. Thank you, Tom Pastore, for being with us this evening on Sport Talks with sport profs. And I'm just, I'm so thrilled, Tom, to have connected with you again with Ryerson University, learn more about what's going on with you, building a new arena, understanding the business of hockey, and also the fact that we are in the business of media and engaging with the fans. So thank you so much. We wish you all the best of luck. Please know that we are thinking about your business and uh, we're, we are spending time understanding what's going on during COVID-19, how we as a university can be thought leaders as well as the students that are spending time wondering uh, what is the future of sport after COVID-19. So thank you so much, Tom. All the best to you and your family and all the best to uh, you at UBS Arena and the Islanders. Take care, have a good evening. Thank you everybody, stay safe, stay healthy. Great, thank you.